When our children were growing up, there was a continual um, good-natured discussion between, amongst all the cousins, uh, my children and their and their cousins, um, as to who, as to which one of them Grandma loved the most. Uh, they would get into that discussion. Uh, it seemed, uh, and every time that Grandma would send them a card or give them a gift, they would let their cousins know that and uh, assured them that that was proof that uh, Grandma loved them the best. Uh, My mom, that is the Grandma I'm speaking of, my mom was careful not to get dragged into those conversations uh, with them, but assured all of them uh, that that they that she loved all of them that they were all loved by her and in fact she lived that way towards them that was something that she lived out to them as well that you know she loved each and every one of them well i was thinking about that uh, as i was studying the apostle we're looking at today that's the apostle john uh let's pray we'll get into that and perhaps you'll see uh why that was a connection for me father thank you thank you that you are a god who shows us love even though we don't deserve it a god who continues to work with us and transform us as we've been looking as i've had the honor the privilege really of studying with about the apostles and it's been a great thing to see as you have transformed their lives and to know you transform ours as well i thank you for the transformation you've been bringing about in my life and look forward really to you continuing that because it's it's just always a good thing to allow you your way in our lives. Help this to be a time where we do that, where we allow you your way in our lives, where we um, open our hearts, open our, our minds to you in a way that is transforming. It's always your power and your grace at work within us, Father. Uh, help us not to forget that and help us to be yours. Use your word, your truth. Uh, and the the things you've brought us through and maybe even have us in the midst of that might remind us not only of your love but of your working within us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. In John's gospel, some of you are aware and some of you aren't, uh, he often refers, he never refers to himself by by name in his gospel. Uh, He always refers to himself either as the other disciple or often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, When they were gathered together for the Last Supper, as John records their their time together and um, tells them that somebody is going to betray him, uh, you know, it says that one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Uh, And then the, uh, after Jesus was um, buried and resurrected again, and the ladies came into the tomb, it says, so then she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And then a little bit later, as they were out fishing, as they had kind of been discouraged a little bit, went back out fishing and weren't quite sure exactly what their role was going to be in the end of the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter. And he's writing and they're fishing and he tells them as they're out there, it says, therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And then a little bit later, as Peter and Jesus were having a discussion, it says, so Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved 
following them. That disciple was the one who leaned against uh, Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who's the one who's going to betray you? But John realized it wasn't just him because he's also the one who wrote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So why he referred to himself, you know, several times as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he also made very clear uh, of, of Jesus' love for the world, you know, that, that it wasn't just him, that it was the whole world. John wrote his gospel. He also wrote three epistles and the uh, book of Revelation. Luke and Paul are the only ones who wrote more of the New Testament than John did. Uh, he is third in line if you're looking at the amount of the New Testament that God delivered through individuals on there. Uh, as we mentioned last week, we often see John with his brother James in the Gospels. Uh, but when you get to the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters in the book of Acts there, we most often see John associated with Peter, not with his brother James there. But in, in those instances, even it's Peter who seems to come to the forefront a little bit more. And John is kind of mostly in the background, even though he's there. But John eventually came the leader because he outlived all the other apostles and he kind of took on the role of patriarch as the church grew and as the church spread and it would look to him in that regard. Now in the Gospels we see John as one of the sons of thunder. We mentioned that last week. He was right there wanting to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. He was right in the thick of the arguments about those uh, about who would be the greatest even prompting, pushing, you know, his mother a little bit to approach Jesus, uh, asking for seats on either side of him in the kingdom. And with all of that running through his veins, with all that bravado he had there, John is often referred to as the apostle of love because he wrote so much about love. Now, not the mushiness, you know, not, not that kind of sentimentality, uh, but the necessity of love from and among God's people. He's one, you know, he's, he goes over and over with th those whole expressions of love and what it means, not only as you get into his gospel, but even as you, as you move and go back into the epistles and makes very clear that, you know, love's not, it's not an option, uh, but it's a necessity. It's a necessity for a life changed by God. That when your life is changed and transformed by God, that love is not only going to be present, it's going to be even more and more evident. Now, love wasn't something that seemed to come naturally for John. It was something he learned from Jesus as he was doing life with Jesus. We, in our society, talk about love, and we have a, it really is a twisted, messed up idea of what love is. As we spend time with Jesus, we too, you know, that whole idea of love and the reality of what it is it begins to transform us more and more. Jesus radically transformed his disciples and he, his apostles. He radically transformed John's temperament as well. And he became overwhelmed. He became guided by the love of God. Now, where it seems perhaps James went out in a blaze of glory, John aged well. The, the last remaining disciple, and he aged well, but he never lost that passion for Christ. He's a great example, really, of what it should mean for us to grow in Christ. So, you know, as, as we go and have our passion refined, directed by God, rather than just a fire in our belly. 
it's not just that, you know, it's not just that, uh, that, that fire in our belly, but it's something that is guided and directed by God. The refining of passion doesn't mean, it doesn't, it doesn't lessen that passion. What it does is it directs it in a way that, that really increases the impact. When you use a hammer, you use a hammer and you hold it by the handle. And what it does is it directs the impact right to the head of the handler. So that what you do then, you see, is you have that there with you and it's directed. And it's not lessened. Instead, the impact is, is increased because of the direction of that impact. That's what God does when he refines someone's character. He doesn't lessen the passion. And with John, he didn't lessen the passion. What he did is he directed it. And by directing it, he increases the impact of what's there. And John's, you know, John's refined his directed passion. It comes through very clearly in his writings. He's a very black and white writer. He's clear. You've heard me use that before, you know. Um, I like to be clear. Careful. We have to be careful because sometimes it comes across as rude. Um, but John was very clear in what he wrote. Look in First John. He says, if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Pretty clear. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not, been, has not seen him or known him. Everyone who is born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he has been born of God. And what he's talking about here is that somebody who's, who's with God, his lifestyle is not marked by sin. It's marked by God. And that there's a, the, that there's a, a, a change in direction. There's a change in motivation. He says, you are, not from, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. He says, dear, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this is the one. This one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. And don't say welcome to him. For the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. And the one who does evil has not seen God. There's no wishy-washy horsing around, no molly-coddling fence-sitters, no, you know, no mamby-pamby stuff with it. He's, he's clear. He's trying to be direct. He's trying to help you to understand that when God comes into your life, God changes your life. And if love isn't a part of that, if that isn't evident, if the love of God hasn't transformed you in some way and somehow and taken off at least some of those rough edges and it continues the process, he says, then you have a problem. 
and that you don't know God as you think you do. The way John wrote is a reflection of his personality, which God used to convey his truths, not John's opinions. As the, as the writers of Scripture were guided, they, they are communicating God's truth, not their own opinions, not their own ideas. Truth was John's passion, and he wanted to make it clear, not at all fuzzy. He wanted to be very clear with it. Now, one of the dangers of that type of personality is a tendency to push things to an extreme. Jenny often tells me, she says, you know, you're a man of extremes. And that goes in a lot of ways, not only in my opinions, um, which I'm happy to share with you if you ask, uh, and sometimes even if you don't. But it even goes that way, you know, when we're we're in the car and she's shivering in the summer because I have the air conditioning going uh, full blast, or in the summer where she's reaching for the knob because I have the heater going. What we have to be careful of is when we carry that over to other areas because a, a passion for truth needs to be balanced by a love for people. Or it gives way. If it's not balanced, it gives way to judgmentalism, harshness, and a lack of compassion. And I have been guilty of that. God has used Jenny to transform, begin to transform me in that way. If you think I'm direct now, well, first of all, those of you who have been around here for 29 years, think back to that. Um, But even before God got a hold of my life, uh, you know, um, I, I just like being clear. And if it hurts your feelings, well, suck it up, buttercup, because you know what? That's just the way it is. And um, um, I, I, I try not to do that now. But John had a passion for truth. Uh, he was the disciple with Andrew when John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. In the first chapter of John, we looked at this before. It says, again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, John being John the Baptist in this case. John the Baptist's disciples were, were there, and two of them were standing with him. It says, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. John and Andrew were those two disciples. A few verses later, it says that Andrew was one of them. He went and got his brother peter uh they but john was the other one they went and followed jesus now they didn't do that because they were disloyal to john the baptist they went and did that because they were in pursuit of truth and they believed that john was speaking the truth and when john was speaking the truth and identified jesus here as as the lamb of god then they began to follow jesus they acted on that truth they heard they knew that truth was to be acted upon and to be lived out and to make a difference in your life and not simply something to pile in your head so that you can dump it off on other people it was to change their lives and as it changed their lives then he they they went and began to follow jesus John used the Greek word for truth 25 times in his gospel and, and 20 times in, in his other writings as well. Um, you know, and before his passion was, was refined, uh, he did run over people. 
uh, John was with his brother James when together they thought it was a good idea to call down fire from heaven and smite the Samaritans who spurned Jesus. We looked at that last week when we were looking at James. In Mark chapter 9, uh, it's the only time that John speaks alone in the Gospels. And in that place, he tells uh, Jesus that he came across a man that was casting out demons in Jesus' name. But John says that he rebuked the man because the man wasn't part of the group of the disciples. And because he wasn't one of them, he rebuked this guy and, and told him to stop. Now, in both of these cases, John is showing just an appalling lack of love and concern for people. The people weren't matter, didn't matter right there. What mattered to him was truth, and he was pursuing the truth, and he was enforcing the truth. And if it meant, if it, if it meant that the Samaritans were going to get smited, then that's just what was going to have to happen. If it meant that this guy then was just going to have to shut up, then that's just what was going to have to happen. He had an aggressive, competitive edge that shut people out. Turn to Mark chapter 9 with me. Well, we're going to look. We're going to walk through this chapter a little bit, and I think it'll help us to see part of the way Jesus refined John in particular, but also perhaps give us some insight into how he refines us. Page 928, Mark chapter 9. I thought it was just a, a good uh, a good chapter as you as you see the flow of it, and we don't I don't think we often see the flow of it here, and see the transformation that's going on in John's life. Verse one, follow along. It says, "Then he said, he being uh, Jesus said to them, I assure you, there are there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come." In power, what a great promise. Verse 2, after six days, so six days after he said that, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, that inner circle of three we've mentioned. He took those three, led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone, and he was transformed in front of them. So just imagine, get this picture in your head of what's going on. He tells them, he tells them, he says, I assure you that some standing here, they're not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And then six days later, shortly after this, he takes, he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up, and he goes up into this mountain that we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration. It wasn't called that then. But he goes up on this mountain and it says, and then he was transformed. He was transfigured right before them and there are eyewitnesses to that. Well, then pretty soon it says that then there's Moses and Elijah along with him. And then the father speaks about this is my beloved son. And then so the father speaks. And you have all of those right there and they're thinking in their minds and you have all of this going on. And, and you know, Elijah's come first and well, here's Moses, here's Elijah, you know, and we we look, we look before what, what Peter says, you know, as Peter speaks up. But here, no doubt what's going on in their mind is they are beginning to think this is the messianic kingdom we've been waiting for. This is the beginning of what we've wanted. This is, this, it's starting now, guys. And they're, they're thinking this, no doubt, as, as it's going, as it's going on and as it's going along. And then, you know, just as things seem to get rolling, then it says they looked up and there was Jesus standing there alone with them. And then look at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They didn't quite get it. 
They have the experience of a lifetime here. And they think this is it in the Messianic kingdom. That, you know, that finally he is stepping forward as we wanted him to. And things are going to get rolling and things are going to get going here. And they, they're, they're having that And they can't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone, Jesus says. And they come down from the mountain there as you look through there, you know, they come down from the mountain and there's the other apostles, the other apostles and disciples. They were, it was just the three of them that went with Jesus. Well, there's, you know, there's the other apostles, there's the other disciples there and they're not, they're not able to cast out a demon out of a boy. You know, they're not, they're not able to do that. Well, Jesus steps in and he frees this boy uh, from the demon. And then notice he gets the disciples uh, over to a less conspicuous place and he tells them again about his coming death. He tells them again that he's going to be going, that he's going to be giving his life. But look at verse 32. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Well, then as they travel along, the disciples get into one of these conversations, into one of these discussions about which one of them is the greatest and who is going to serve as Jesus' right-hand man. Peter, James, and John just had this huge experience with Jesus on the mountain. And they have this huge experience. They come down. They're not allowed to tell anybody. And they come down. And then they they witness once again Jesus just drive the demon out. He pulls his disciples aside. He begins to tell them. They don't quite understand. What do they do? Then they get into this whole discussion here about who's going to be greatest who do you think is has in their mind who's going to be greatest the three guys who went up on a mountain with them but couldn't say anything yet if you would have seen what we see you know it's me it's not you i mean this is this is probably part of the discussion that's going on there and they can't talk about it they're probably thinking they have that inside track with Jesus. Certainly one of them was going to be his go-to guy. How could it not be? He's the one, you know, they're the three that he took up with him, that he took with him on the mountain and let them see this. How could it not be one of these three guys? Well, then notice Jesus asks them what they're talking about. Well, at least they were too embarrassed to admit what they were arguing over. At least they had progressed enough in their common sense to to not bring that up. But then Jesus uses this as an opportunity to further refine and direct his disciples. And I think what we begin to see is a transformation of at least John. Look at verse 36. It says, Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Jesus draws a huge contrast here between their arrogant presumptions and their arguing and tells them that they need to be humble, they need to be accepting, they need to be open like this child. This child wasn't fighting to see who would be the greatest. This child was anxious to be with Jesus. Was just wanting to be a part of it there. And then we see that one time in the Gospels where John speaks on his own with Jesus. Verse 38. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. I think what he's doing here is confessing to Jesus. I think what he's doing here is telling him, I heard what you said, Lord, and I need to tell you, 
I really blew it. I need to tell you that I just ran roughshod over someone. Jesus is telling them that they needed to be open, that they needed to be accepting, that they needed to be loving like this little child. And John saw how he had been arrogant and dismissive and condescending. And he comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I just saw someone casting out demons in your name and I didn't I didn't respond like this. I told him to stop. I think what we see here is John is learning the balance of truth and love. And we're seeing him being transformed. Truth without love is brutal. It runs roughshod over people. Uh, That's something Jesus didn't do. I can remember, and it's a good thing I can remember this because it has helped me more than once. I can remember Jenny saying to me about the way that I talk to people sometimes. I can remember her saying to me, you know they have feelings. When our focus is only on truth, the goal becomes being right. It doesn't become trying to help people see Jesus. It doesn't become trying to help them come to know who Jesus is. And what ha- we become abusers, not healers. And we actually drive a wedge between people and God. I saw an article this week and it just just kind of was like a kick in the gut. Talking about how evangelicals are looked at negatively. I think it was by, if I remember correctly, 60% of the population in this country. I thought that's not the way it should be. But sometimes it's because in our, in our pursuit of truth that we use that in a way that runs over people. And what it does is it drives them away from God instead of bringing them closer to Him. Truth without love is brutal. But love without truth is misguided. It's simply misguided sentimentality. And what we have to be careful of is that we don't overreact to this, that we don't respond in ways we shouldn't. Because when, when truth is missing, love is misguided and love is actually destructive. Because then what happens is we begin talking about love and we begin talking about tolerance without, with, with absolutely no regard for truth. And that is not what we should do. The, the truth needs to affect how we love. And so what begins to happen, what begins to happen is you have love there without truth, then you substitute your own truth for a standard and you set up that standard that you embrace. And we see this going on today and sometimes we, 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 we react against that and begin to spell out truth without love. Those who respond to truth without love, they, you know, we may have our theology straight, 
but we come across as unloving and self-exalting. The lack of love mars the truth sometimes that we profess to care so much about. Ephesians 4, Paul is writing about the gifts of the church, and he says the gifts of the church, they're given to, 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 you know, so that we could build up, so that, that you know, the, the church can be strengthened, that it can grow. And he says, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, when we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, who is Christ but speaking the truth in love. Why? Because we've been transformed by God. Because we are growing and maturing. And as you grow and mature in your relationship with Christ, you you become more loving as you share his truth. Not more hostile, not more belligerent, not more rude. Know the truth, but uphold it in love. The two have to work together in balance. Truth is not to be abandoned in the pursuit of love. And love is not to be set aside in the pursuit of truth. God calls us to speak the truth in love. Not to speak the truth or love. To speak the truth in love. And we need to be able to do the, the, the two of those. And, we need, and where we can't, we need to continue to go back to Jesus to have our life and our heart transformed in such a way that his truth is not only what guides us, but that his call to love others is also what compels us to speak the truth to them in love. This is what John was learning. Last week we studied the Apostle James John's brother, we looked at Matthew's account of James and John and their mother approaching Jesus about James and John getting the seats on either side of Jesus in his coming kingdom, you know, that that was the place to be. Mark's account gives us a a little bit uh, different angle there and helps us to see that James and John were the main instigators of that request. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, teacher, We want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you, he asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, there's really nothing intrinsically wrong with that request. I mean, who wouldn't want want to sit there? I mean, we'd be great. I mean, when, when... we went to watch Luke's uh, soccer game yesterday. It was an indoor soccer game, and we sat up in the balcony. And um, I sat where I could see, you know. And because we were up high, and it was right along the balcony. Uh, and you know, so then my two granddaughters sitting on my lap, you know, and I look around there. Their heads are between them, you know. But why? Well, because we want to. 
Who wouldn't want who wouldn't want these who wouldn't you know who wouldn't want these seats? Here's the problem though. You see, the, the focus at this point was to obtain the position, not to be worthy of that position. They wanted to have it. They didn't they didn't want that, that transforming to go on, you know, they they just wanted to have that spot. And Jesus' goal was the transformation of his followers, the same as it is today. He is still trying to transform his followers to be his people. That request there, Jesus uses it as an opportunity, an object lesson, because we're told, you know, that that as, as the other apostles saw this, they were ticked off. That's a paraphrase. They were irritated. They were mad with James and John. Well, then it says, Jesus called them over and said to them, You know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high position exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, they wanted to be great. Jesus wanted them to be humble. They wanted recognition. Jesus wanted humble service. They wanted that spot where they could be seen. Jesus wanted them to to see others. They wanted to be noticed, and Jesus wanted them to notice others. But that's consistent with everything that he'd been teaching them all along. In Luke chapter 14, it says when Jesus is talking to them, he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both you, uh, both of you may come to you and say, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up, to, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it seems they were very slow to catch on to this direction for Jesus because even when they got to the Last Supper, not a single one of them, not, not a single one of them was willing to humble themselves to do what was normally done, the washing of the feet. See, to us, that's an awkward thing. To them, you know, it wasn't awkward. It was something that was done when they would come into a home for a meal like that, particularly for a formal meal, which is what that was. That's why they were reclining at table, because it was a formal meal. And as they would recline at the table, and, and then their, their feet were out, you know, just a little more visible because they were down on a low table. And, and you know, th- th- so this was something that was no- not a single one of them. would humble themselves and do that. John is the only gospel that records that event of the foot washing. I think it's because it made an impression on him. I think it's because it was something that that John just didn't forget. Perhaps John never mentions himself in the gospel because he wanted the attention to go to Jesus and not to himself. You know, perhaps he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
because he marveled at the fact that Jesus would love even him. You see, he wrote these things after a transformation process. He wrote the gospel after God had transformed him from a son of thunder into an apostle of love. And maybe he referred to himself that way because he just marveled at the fact that God would love even him. One final area we'll look at where Jesus refined John. Because, you know, like us, John also had to learn that suffering has a place in the life of someone with a relationship with Jesus. We don't like this part of life. We don't like this part where suffering comes. But suffering comes into every life, even those who have a relationship with Jesus. Now, he tried to prepare his disciples for this. When he, was, when he was teaching them in John 12, he says, I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In Matthew chapter 16, he said, uh, he said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross. That's not your annoying neighbor. Taking up your cross isn't the fact that you have to work, you know, in, in the job that you're working on. So he has to take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. They all heard this. They all heard this, yet when Jesus was arrested, they all took off. They all fled. And when he was arrested and hauled out of that garden and none of his disciples were, were around at all. Now it seems that John, along with Peter, went back and were eyewitnesses to the trial there as they got in to the courtyard because John knew the was friends with the high priest, was known to the high priest. And they were there for Jesus' trial, for his beatings. Seeing that crown of thorns forced onto his head. the flogging, the scourging. As Pilate attempted to satisfy the crowd, but couldn't. As you read the Gospels, we're left with the picture that John's the only apostle at the cross there. He was probably there and saw the Roman soldiers pound those nails through Jesus' hands and through his feet. He was close enough to hear as Jesus struggled to breathe. He heard Jesus ask the Father for to forgive those who did this to him. He was standing there when 
he heard Jesus cry out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was close enough that Jesus could look over at him and see him and give him the responsibility of caring for his mother. He was probably there as Jesus cried out, it is finished. And his body went limp as he dismissed his spirit. Last week when we were looking at James, John's brother, we saw that the only death of the one of the apostles recorded in Scripture, where it says he died by the sword, probably beheaded. I'm guessing John's the one who felt the most pain about his brother being killed in an effort to stop the growth of the church. Over time, John would hear of his ten brother apostles all being martyred for their faith, and he would soon be left alone, the survivor of a group who thought things were going to turn out so much differently than they did. He would know the loneliness of exile. He lived in a cave on the Isle of Patmos for years. That's where he was when he wrote the book of Revelation. And with all of this going on, there is not one word of complaint there is not one there there's not one whimper of whining from him at all in any of the in his gospel at all not in any of his epistles not in the revelation he wrote there's not one complaint about what went on he was learning that suffering has a place in the life of one who follows Jesus Christ he would write in the Revelation, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. He mentions tribulation here, but notice he very quickly looks beyond that present trouble, focuses on what? The kingdom. That day when he would be in the presence and glory of Christ once again. That time in, 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 which, in which he would see once more what it was that he had hoped for. John uses the word love more than 80 times in his gospels and his epistle. About twice the time, about twice the number of times he used the word truth. Clearly, he learned the importance of a passion that's tempered and directed by Jesus, balancing truth and love, all to be used for God's glory rather than for our own. According to most accounts, John died in A.D. 98. Jerome, one of the church fathers, church historians. He wrote that John was so frail in his final years that he had to be carried into the church, and yet he still came. 
He still thought that it was important that we love one another and show the world that we are Christ's disciples. The importance of still balancing that truth and love in a life transformed by God. May that be ever more true of us. The ones who have the honor and privilege of looking back and seeing a little bit fuller picture as we look forward to what God will complete, knowing that what we have here is so temporary. And one day we will step out of this life into eternity with God. And we have the honor and the privilege of being able to share that truth with others. But to do so in love, in a heart and a life transformed by the love and the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in us. It's something we really need. It's too easy for us to just sit back and blast somebody. Or sometimes just to sit back and be quiet. Neither of which you've called us to do. But to allow you to transform us in such a way that the personality you've given us is refined by you in a way that brings more power and impact than we could ever have done on our own. Not so that we get a name, Father, but so that more come to see you and know you. So that as we talk and as we share, we will be able to see within ourselves that you have transformed and continue to transform us more into the people you want us to be. Father, motivate us. As we look at the apostles and see what you have done in them, you are the same God at work in us today. Transform us into people of truth and love. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.